you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to Acts 19. We're continuing on in our series, We Are Sent. And today, as a bit of an interesting title, We Are Sent to Bring Conflict and Comfort. Because the gospel creates both of those, conflict in some, comfort in others. And that's exactly what Paul was experiencing here in Ephesus. Luke records it like this in chapter 19, verse 21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture, not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Sounds like a Baptist business meeting. Anyway, <laughs> the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we'd not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through the area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius and Derbe, 
Deus from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Must have been a rough trip. It took two days to go over, five days to get back. They ran into some trouble with the weather, probably. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. And you thought my sermons were long. Anyway, <laughs> there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I like the way Luke wrote that. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down there himself, on the, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Wow. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, God, for the reminder that we are sent as well to preach the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes that message brings conflict. Sometimes it brings comfort. The results are up to you. Help us to be encouraged today because we are sent into the world for you in our time to preach a gospel that you use for your glory. Help us to learn from this, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last weekend, Carla and I were in Ohio visiting our daughter and son-in-law who just moved there. And uh, we got a chance to go to the National Air Force Museum at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where my son-in-law is currently working. It's an amazing place. In four hangars, they have all kinds of planes from every era of flight history, from the Wright brothers all the way through experimental aircraft that fly 4,500 miles an hour. One of those planes that we saw is currently used in our arsenal in the fight against terrorism. It is a force to be reckoned with. It's called an AC-130 gunship. Looks like this. Now, my son-in-law, Garrett, who uh, was a captain in the Air Force, said, this is the weapon that most of the ISIS and Taliban fighters fear the most. It has guns in the front, cannons in the back, and they are deadly accurate. They are powerful. They can take out one person or a whole group of people. And the reason the Taliban and ISIS fighters don't like this plane is because it flies high and it flies quiet and they can take out what they want most of the time before the enemy on the ground even knows they're there. They fear this the most. But it's interesting that the opposite is true for our own troops and allies. Because you see the guys on the ground, when they know there's an AC-130 in the air, they have a lot more encouragement, a lot more confidence and are welcoming the arrival of this plane. See, you have the same plane with the same capability, flown by the same people, and yet this plane causes fear and consternation to some, comfort and encouragement to others. 
as my son-in-law Garrett was sharing those things, I began to think, you know what? The gospel of Jesus Christ is a lot like that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a power. And there are some people, it will provide conflict because they fear it and they oppose it. And there are others who welcome it and are encouraged by it. That was the contrast of responses that Paul experienced when he was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, Macedonia, Achaia, and on his trip back to Rome. It tells us in verse 21, Acts 19, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I'd been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. After all these events, of these missionary journeys and all that had happened there in Ephesus, he decides he's heading back to Jerusalem and hopes eventually to go to Rome. So he tends, sends Timothy and Erastus ahead to him across the water to the European continent, to Macedonia. But he stays in Ephesus on the Asian continent a bit longer. And what unfolds there in Ephesus is a great encouragement to you and I who are also sent to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Because you see, it will create conflict with some, but it will bring comfort and encouragement to others. It all depends on what God they serve and whether or not they believe. Which is why Luke reminds us we are sent to proclaim the gospel to all peoples and leave the result with God. What results might we expect? Well, the same ones that Paul experienced. Conflict with those who follow the gods of this world. Comfort to those who follow the resurrected Jesus. We are sent to proclaim the gospel that creates conflict in those who follow the gods of this world. Luke put it like this, chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, the name that had been given to the Christians who follow the way Jesus. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. My uh, father-in-law, Cully Olson, was quite an evangelist. Uh, in fact, People used to say of him, Cully could lead people to Jesus with just a phone book. I mean, God used him so powerfully wherever he went. When he and Carla's mom, Ruth, were serving in the ministry in Alaska in the 1950s, God was using them so powerfully with the gospel that the local bars were losing business. Cully wasn't going around picketing the bars. He wasn't advocating a campaign against drinking. He didn't do any of those things. He was just preaching the gospel. So many people were getting saved in that Lakes Bernard community that eventually they decided, I don't want to hang out in that lifestyle anymore. So they stopped going. 
Well, the bar owners weren't happy. And Cully told me that over time, he and the family started receiving threats against their person. They were attempting to frighten him, to chase him out of town, to get rid of the influence and the gospel and the church that was hurting their business. Because you see, to these people, the preaching of the gospel created a conflict between the truth and the gods that these people wanted to serve. Sometimes the preaching of the gospel creates conflict just as it was in Ephesus. You see, there were people coming to Jesus and leaving behind the worship of the false Ephesian goddess Artemis. And some of the local business people weren't happy. Verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. And a silversmith named Artemis sees their trade losing business. They're not selling as many souvenirs and as many shrines to their goddess and they're blaming the Christians and Paul who's teaching that gods made by human hands are no gods at all so he decides to do something about it now Artemis also called Diana was a near eastern goddess of fertility her image was a grotesque multi-breasted woman now how did they come up with that well they said it's undeniable she fell from the sky it wasn't the first time in the ancient Near East where a meteorite or something else that fell out of the sky was worshipped as coming from the gods. So was the case with Artemis. This meteorite that hit had an image that looked reminded them of a woman with bumps all over it, a multi-breasted woman. And so they developed a whole religion out of this worship to Artemis, this rock. And they had eunuch priests and they had a whole classification of three priestesses and it was amazing what they did with this. The, the temple that they built in her honor became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a major tourist attraction. So it was a boon to the city of Ephesus. The restaurants were doing well, the hotels were full, and the local craftsmen and souvenir shops were selling these souvenirs hand over fist. But so many people were coming to Christ that <laughs> Demetrius and his buddies we're losing revenue. And they were afraid, man, if Artemis gets discredited and everybody knows it, nobody's going to come here anymore. We're going to be out of business. So Demetrius, the guildmaster for the silversmith industry, decides he's going to do something about it. He calls all the craftsmen together and he said, look, these Christians and this guy, Paul, they're killing our livelihood. The street filled with people, filled with people, the main avenue of Ephesus. And a crowd mob formed and swept along two of Paul's companions to a theater at the east end of the street that seated 24,000 people, and they packed out the theater. Shows you how many people were involved in this mob. Paul wanted to go in and preach. Man, I got a whole auditorium full of people. I'm going to go tell them about Jesus. And the disciples said, you ain't going in there. Even the provincial officials who had become friends with Paul said, please, don't go in there, Paul. It's going to be ugly. The situation at the theater was a mob scene. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. It's like a lot of protests that go on today. 
The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander, a Jew, to the front, and they shouted instructions to him on what he was to say. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense, and before, and to say, hey, don't blame the Jews, it's those Christians. But before he could even talk, they realized he was a Jew. They all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It was a mob scene. And the city clerk, their equivalent of a mayor, immediately came and tried to quiet the crowd. Because you see, Ephesus was a free city, which meant they were given the privilege by Rome to govern themselves as long as they paid their taxes and kept the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The city clerk knew if Rome gets word that we've got unlawful mobs like this sweeping the street and filling the theater, they're going to send their hordes in here and take over. We're going to lose our freedom. I don't want that to happen. So he gets up and he reminds the people, this is unlawful. Demetrius has a problem. We got courts. We got proconsuls. You guys are a mob. If word of this gets out, we won't be able to defend ourselves. You got to knock it off. And so they did. The gospel creates conflict. In this case, the gospel created a riot by people who saw their livelihood being threatened. People, Demetrius and those tradesmen could have cared less about Artemis. Their God was money. Their God was their business. Their God was themselves. They weren't concerned with Artemis. They were concerned with what was going to happen to them if this Artemis was discredited. They were devoted to a false god. And the gospel threatened that. And so it created conflict. It does the same thing today. People worship all the same gods, the same idols. There's nothing new here. People today worship money. They prostrate themselves to the idol of power or even religion, to business, to sex, to ease, to the cult of me first. Some people are more devoted, more devoted to work or family or security or pleasure than they are to any God. Those things become their God. And people, Christians aren't immune. Even so-called Christians many times are not fully devoted to Jesus. And that's why you see so many so-called Christians struggle when they're asked to give or to serve or to put Jesus first. Many people who say they are Christians aren't really devoted to Jesus, but to one of the idols they actually serve. And I have to watch out for this in my own life all the time. Because the reality is that many times if we're not careful, Jesus isn't first. Family is first. Or job is first. Or our home is first. Or the kids are first. Or the sports teams, or my spouse, or the cars, or my weekends free is first. Some are even more devoted to church than they are to Jesus. 
and the call to put Jesus first and to be done with every other idol because anything that usurps Jesus' place, whether it's us or something else, becomes an idol. And the call to put Jesus first makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It may be making some of you uncomfortable today because I don't know if Jesus is first in everybody's life that's here. And I can tell you when God reveals an area of my life where Jesus isn't first, it makes me really uncomfortable to have to deal with that. But the fact is it becomes an idol. Paul told Titus in chapter 1, verse 16, there are people who claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. It's what Jesus addressed in Matthew 15, verse 8, when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It was the same thing that God dealt with with Israel, the northern kingdom, in the Old Testament when he sent Hosea, the prophet, to preach to the people because their idolatry was destroying them. And he said, Hosea, tell the people that they're becoming as vile as the things that they love, the thing that they worship. D.A. Carson once wrote, what you worship, you soon resemble. More, you identify with it, defend it, make common cause with it. And if it's an abomination to God, then soon you are an abomination to him as well. Wow. You see, this is why John, the apostle, wrote in 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. That whole world system that throws up all kinds of idols to steal our devotion to God. Don't love that world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. Hold on to that. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world and its desires, its idols, they all pass away. People, Ephesus chose Artemis as their God and resisted. Some resisted the gospel. Ephesus as a city is gone. The world and its desires pass away. Ephesus as a city is gone. So is the worldwide worship of Artemis. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on Acts once wrote, the city and the temple are gone. The silversmith's guild is gone. Ephesus is a place visited primarily by archaeologists and people on Holy Land tours. Yet, the gospel of God's grace and the church of Jesus Christ are still here, and they always will be. You see, that's the gospel you and I are sent to proclaim. That's the Jesus we are sent to live up as, lift up as Lord and King in a world full of idols and false gods. And this is the Jesus And the gospel we're remembering today in communion. That Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again, and he's alive. Offering hope and forgiveness and eternal life to everyone who will believe and receive him. You see, the gospel creates conflict, and that's a good thing. Because in that conflict, people may come to realize that the idols I serve will never save me. The idols I serve are robbing me from the very life that God is offering. And maybe that conflict 
will be what God will use to open their eyes to the true God, Jesus Christ. And they will embrace him, as many people in Ephesus eventually did. The gospel creates conflict in those who follow the gods of this world. But we are sent to proclaim the gospel that brings comfort to those who follow the resurrected Jesus. Here's the way Luke put it in chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled throughout that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. If you go on to read the text, there were some Jews there who were going to plot against him again if he took the boat out of Greece. So he decided to go back north through Macedonia and across the sea on a five-day trip back to Troas on the Asian continent. When he gets to Troas on the first day of the week, verse 7, we came together to break bread, to have communion. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story, was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And when he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate, after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive, were greatly comforted. A few weeks ago, Carla and I were in San Diego. Carla was singing at a memorial service for the mother of some dear friends here in our church. We got to the church a little early. Doors weren't open yet, so we just sat outside in the parking lot. The church there happens to be in an area of San Diego that has a lot of homeless. And it wasn't long until one of them came up to our window. As he approached, I rolled the window down. He looked to be in his 50s. Uh, he didn't look drunk or high. He just looked really sad. So I said to him, do you know, you look really down. What's going on? He began to describe to me how a good friend of his, a dear friend of his, had just been beaten to death, another homeless friend, beaten to death the night before out behind the church. He was grieving his loss. And I said to him, I'm so sorry for your loss. What's your name? He said, everybody knows me as Doc. I said, Doc, it's really nice to meet you. I said, can I pray for you? I said, I'm a follower of Jesus. And uh, do you follow Jesus? Yeah, I do, he said. I said, you, you believe that he's the Savior, that he died for your sins. He was buried and rose again the third day, and he's alive, and he lives in you. You, you trusted him as your salvation. Yep, I have. I said, man, Doc, that's great. Did your friend believe in Jesus like that? I think so. And so I said to him, Doc, I want you to hold on to this. If your friend believed in Jesus like we just talked about, then he's not dead. He's alive. More alive than you and I could possibly imagine. And I know it hurts you deeply to have lost this good friend, but I want you to hold on to the hope that's ours as Christians. That death can't harm us anymore. Because you see, Jesus lives, so we're going to live forever. And I want you to hold on to that hope. You know what he said to me? Thank you. I find a lot of comfort in that. And I thought, isn't that interesting? The gospel that caused such conflict among some is the same gospel that just brought comfort to this man.
The difference is whether or not you believe in Jesus and the resurrection. You see, Luke went on to say in chapter 20 that as Paul gathered the people there at Ephesus, a church that was born there out of that preaching, that he encouraged them a great deal. He brought them together. He said goodbye, headed off to Macedonia. And everywhere he went, he preached the gospel that brought encouragement. When opposition arose and he decided to head back, he goes back through Troas on his way to Jerusalem. The place where he had met Luke. And Luke has joined him again now. Probably Luke had finished his time at Philippi. Paul said, we sailed from Philippi and all the language changes from they to we. Again, Luke is back traveling with his friend Paul. They come to Troas and one of his first desires on Sunday is to have communion with the people. At night, because the people worked during the day, the church met at night, wherever they could. Paul's leaving the next day. He's got a lot to cover, so he preaches till midnight. Luke was in the room, so he gives us these details. There were many lamps in this upstairs room. The air is getting thick. It's getting hard to keep their eyes open. The lamps are sucking the air out of the room. People are getting sleepy and Paul's preaching and there's this young boy sitting on a windowsill trying to get some air. And the language use says he's not quickly but slowly he's like fighting the nods. And he can't do it anymore. He's out. And he leans back and falls out the window. Three stories. And he died. Paul and the others run down out of concern for him. Paul picks the kid up. And in the power of Jesus' name, he raises this kid to life. And he says to him, don't be alarmed. He's alive. (laughs) He goes back in upstairs to break bread again. He's having a snack. Break bread in verse 7 was the word for communion. Break bread here was, I'm hungry, give me some brownies. These guys are having a midnight snack. And it's a good thing they had refreshments because he preached all night till it was daylight. And it says, verse 12, the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Why were they greatly comforted? Not just because the kid was alive. but Because they had seen the living proof of what Paul was preaching. He's been declaring the gospel. The good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that those who believe in Christ will live forever. They will not die. Eutychus died, fell out the window. Paul goes down in the power of Jesus' name. He raises this kid up. And all these people are like, it's real. Jesus has the power of resurrection. Jesus died, and he lives. Eutychus died, and he lives. We're going to die, but we're going to live. What Paul's preaching is true. And they went home greatly comforted, greatly encouraged. People, that's the hope we have as Christians. No matter what happens to us, we're going to live forever with Jesus. That's the hope of the gospel and the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul was preaching. That's where the comfort came from. It was comfort for Paul and his companions. It was comfort for those who are at Troas. It was comfort for Doc in San Diego. And it's to be a comfort for you and me. You see, this is the gospel you and I are sent out to proclaim. This is the gospel we're remembering right here today in communion. 
Paul comes to Troas to have communion, a renewal of this covenant, a remembrance of this Jesus with people who had believed. And that's what we're doing today. It's been handed down to us. And we are to keep doing this until Jesus comes. In fact, it was Jesus who taught Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're waiting for his arrival because Jesus is alive. And if you believe in his resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, you're going to live together with him forever too. This is our hope. This is the gospel we're sent to proclaim. And this gospel sometimes brings conflict with those who want to stay worshiping the gods of this world. But it brings comfort, hope, peace, and assurance to those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. This is the Jesus we're remembering today, who said, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. It's given for you. Therefore, as often as you eat this, remember me. Father, that's what we're here to do. It was no different for Paul that night in Troas. They were breaking bread together and having communion and remembering you. This covenant of renewal, this new arrangement, this gospel of grace through faith that is still saving people who believe it. God, send us into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It will create conflict among some, but out of that conflict can come life. And it will bring comfort to all who have believed and embraced your resurrection. Thank you, God, for this privilege today to remember in this way. May this time our lives and our response and our proclaiming this good news bring glory to your name. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.